David's anointing, as we've been looking at the book of 2 Samuel, is a picture of the greater David and his kingdom. The greater David is Jesus Christ. And we're going to watch as a fractured nation, the nation of Israel, rallies to the true king. But this nation, this nation of Israel, in the history in which we are studying it, has been in civil war for seven years. The nation's been divided. And there's a man up in the north. He's actually on the other side of the Jordan River in a place called Mahanaim. And there he's been set up really as a puppet king because Abner desired to have power. But Ishbosheth has watched the kingdom around him beginning to crumble. And things are not going well at all. In fact, he, he's just now going to get word that the great general behind his kingdom, his name is Abner, has died. And if you recall, we looked at 2 Samuel two Sundays ago, and it was Joab who killed Abner in revenge for him killing his brother. And Abner, this mighty man, this strength behind the puppet king in the north, is now dead. And Ishbosheth is reeling. He doesn't know what to do because his strength is really gone. In life, when we put our strength or we count on the wrong thing, and that thing is taken away, we find ourselves in deep trouble. If you rely on the wrong thing, if you rely on the wrong power source, if you look to yourself and your strength, your strength at some point is going to wane. Amen? We figured out at some point along this life that we just don't have the goods to do it. We just don't have everything we need to do all that we want to do. Time goes by, the weight of the world, all the things that men promise to do and they fail. Politicians and people we look up to even in the sports world or even pastors that we might have looked up to at one time can disappoint us. And so we find ourselves asking big questions like where is life really lived? Where do you find power for this journey? And where do you find hope beyond this life? I think those are all the big questions that we're asking. Jesus was taking his apostles on the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem, and he was about to tell them he's going to die for the sins of the world. And he took them up to northern Israel to a place called Caesarea Philippi, right at the foot of Mount Hermon. And there, there was a place called the Rock of the Gods. And they would worship all these different types of gods. There are all kinds of pagan idolatry would go on. And one of the gods that they worshiped there was a god named Pan. Jesus took them to this place and he began to say to them, who do you say, who are people saying that the son of man is? And they gave them, he, they, they gave him all kinds of different answers. But then he turned the question to them and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commended Peter. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And he said, and you are the rock. And on this rock, two different Greek words used. Peter was the little rock. On this rock, I will build my church. And there are many of us who believe that the rock that Jesus was talking about was the physical location at Caesarea Philippi, where all the paganism was taking place. On this rock, this mountain, where 
all evil and all unspeakable things take place, there I will build my church and the gates of Hades. By the way, in that rock structure, and I've taught this in the past from Matthew 16, there were little cutout windows where there used to be figurines of demons and people would worship there and they would leave sacrifices for these so-called gods. Even the god Hades and the underworld and everything was celebrated there. And Jesus said, do you see that rock? This is my interpretation of what he's saying. On that rock where all this evil happens, where all this fear of death and what's going to happen to people, on that rock I will build my church. Right there where evil is, right there where people are you know, going the wrong direction. I will build my church. This message is called, I will build my kingdom. You know, for those of us who are in the ministry, and we all are in the ministry, whether we not, or not we are in professional ministry, we spend our time trying to build the kingdom, hopefully. And we come to a point in our lives where we realize, you know what? I can't really build the kingdom of God. God has to build the kingdom through me. The guys went up, 64 guys on a men's retreat. We went up to uh, Running Springs up there, kind of at the base of the mountain below uh, Lake Arrowhead. And you get up there and, you know, you can actually see a couple of stars, which is quite amazing. You almost forgot that there were stars until you go up to the mountains, right? And you see all these incredible stars and you begin to take some deep breaths because you know you're going back to, down the mountain to the Inland Empire, <laughs> right? And you realize, you know what? God is big enough to deal with my issues, big enough to deal with my problems, big enough to deal with the biggest issues that I might have. And the guys did something symbolic. Around a fire, we wrote down things that we wanted to let go. Maybe besetting sins, maybe things that we struggle with, and they were thrown into a fire. And I'll make a public confession this morning before you. One of the things that I threw in the fire is control. I don't know about you, but I like to have the wheel. And when things are maybe not going well in life or, you know, we have struggles and big questions that maybe we can't deal with, then we have to begin to ask some questions about our faith. Like, who am I really trusting in? Am I stressing out and panicking over things because I really don't place my faith in God? You know, there's things that we have to revisit consistently in our hearts about what we really believe and where does it really work? Does it work in my marriage? Does it work when we're facing a bad di diagnosis? When, does it work when I don't know what's going to happen in this situation? I don't know what's going to happen with this kid or this struggle. That's really where God wants us to believe him. He wants us to believe him for big things. He, he wants us to know that he's going to build his kingdom through us. We can, we can let go. We can release some stuff at his feet. He's been doing this for a long time. Some of us say, I'm 18 now. I, I think I've got everything down. <laughs> and even when we get older... We figure, well, years and mileage should give us some sort of credit, right? And then we say things like this. If I only knew then what I know now, I would tell those young whippersnappers a thing or two or three. 
But nobody's listening. <laughs> in 1 Samuel 2, 35, in the face of some failing priests, it was said by God, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And he was speaking of Samuel. In 2 Samuel 7, 11, the Lord also declares to you, and he says, he's saying this to David. David wanted to build God a house, and he said, I will build you a house. Sometimes we, we get these grand ideas of what we want to do for God, and God says, this is what I want to do for you. How about you let me build the house? How about you let me take care of those things? How about you understand that one of the biggest things in the faith is surrender? And you let me do my work as you seek my face. I want you to pray. I want you to study my word. I want you to get to know me. I'll take care of the rest. But I want you to be faithful to what I've called you to do. 2 Samuel 4, verse 1, with that backdrop, opens this way. Now, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, 2 Samuel 4, 1, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, that was David's uh, headquarters in the south. Ishbosheth lost courage. And all Israel was disturbed. If you have an ESV, it says they were dismayed, alarmed, NIV, troubled, New King James. Ishbosheth hears that Abner is dead, that he died in Hebron as he went on a visit to David. And he, the king in the north, lost courage. Once he found out his general was dead, he lost courage. I don't know what it takes for you and me to lose courage. If we have something taken away that we've been leaning on. You know, maybe God takes some things away from us so that we might learn that he's our strength, right? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, When I'm weak, then I am strong. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And so we go through life trying to rely on these things. And I think Ishbosheth is a good example of a man who was counting on the wrong things. This strong general who had propped him up as a really a puppet king. He was worried. In fact, he lost courage, verse 1, and it says, And all Israel was disturbed. All Israel was troubled. When the Magi came to King Herod to seek out where the king of the Jews had been born, they asked the question in Matthew 2, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It's a similar scene. And you say, well, why was, all, why was the city troubled when Herod was troubled? Because the city knew that when Herod had trouble, people were going to die. This is what he did. He would take out his wrath on other people. He would kill wives and children and you name it. And we know the dark side of Christmas in Matthew 2 in the latter half of that chapter is that he killed all the babies in Bethlehem two years age and under. And Jesus got away because... There was a warning given to the family, but Herod spilled a bunch of blood, and that was his intent. He, he wanted nobody to threaten his throne. And Ishbosheth is here, and he's hearing now his great general has died, and he doesn't know probably at this point all the circumstances. Maybe he thought that this was something that David did. We know that David didn't want this to happen, but it did. And now 
as the scene shifts from Hebron, about 60 miles northeast, to Mahanaim across the Jordan River. There is Ishbosheth, and he is reeling. He is literally, you could render this, lost heart. His courage failed, ESV. Literally, his hands became slack. He lost his grip. And we ask the question, why did he lose courage at this point? Why did he lose heart? Because he was placing his faith in the wrong place. Misplaced faith gets you in trouble. Because if you place your faith in the wrong thing, you're going to end up being what? Disappointed at some point. So he was counting on Abner to be the answer, to be his strength. What causes you to lose courage? What causes you to lose heart? May I suggest misplaced faith? We say we believe in God, but then really, when a couple of things go wrong, all of a sudden we're reeling. And look, I'm saying this of myself as well. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The real power behind Ishbosheth was Abner, but the real power behind David was God. If you look at your life, if you peeled everything back right now and asked some questions about what you do day in and day out, what your true power source is, what would you say? See, one of the things that God's trying to teach us is to rely on his power, to know his even the power of his resurrection in our lives. And he's got to strip away a lot of things for that to happen. Look at Deuteronomy 31. This is Moses. Uh, if you want to turn there, if you, if you don't want to go there, just listen to it. Deuteronomy 31. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Moses is coming to the end of his life. And uh, he's going to pass the baton to Joshua. And here's what he says. And I want you to note how Moses points the people away from him to the Lord. Deuteronomy 31, verse 1. So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I don't know if it was Moses' birthday or not, but he said, man, I'm a, I'm a buck 20 today, man. Hey, hey, hey. That's a lot of candles to put on a cake, by the way. I am no longer able to come and go. And those of us who are getting older, you might want to mark that. I take that quite literally. <laughs> no longer able to come and go. There's a, a good buddy here this morning. His name is Tim's beautiful wife, Heidi. Raise up your hand. There you guys are. So we met, I think it was in the late 80s, and we played a lot of slow pitch together. And we looked at each other. Tim came and visited today, and... Uh, Tim and Heidi did, and we were looking at each other. Softball came up, and we both looked at each other and said, nope. <laughs> you playing anymore? Nope. You playing anymore? Nope. Not able to come and go as I used to. Tim, by the way, I am playing golf now, more golf, which is totally humbling, and I'm not sure that's the answer either, but anyway. He says, the Lord has said to me, you're not going to cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. Notice how he points them to God. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Jo Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them, just as he had done to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will deliver them up before you. 
You shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. You shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. If you go to the right a little bit, go to the next book. It's the book of Joshua. Moses has died and God is going to charge Joshua to be strong. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. Moses is dead and God says to Joshua, No man will be able, one five, to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, verse 7. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will, be, you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 4. We did a memorial service for Priscilla Del Campo um, just recently. And one of the things that her children said about her was that she was a woman of prayer and a woman of the word. So there were about four or five different scriptures that I was thinking about sharing at her memorial service. And as I heard the family talking about her sitting here in the front row, what came to me is Psalm chapter 1. As a staff, we had just done a devotion in that chapter, and it talks about a man or a woman who will meditate on the, the law of the Lord, how often? Day and night will be like, what? A tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And whatever it does, it will prosper. It, its leaves will not wither. It's what we all want. We want success, but I'm not sure success is how we define it in the Christian world. We often define success by numbers or buildings or, you know, things, bullet points on a sheet of paper, but God does not assess things that way. God defines success as a man or a woman who is after his own heart. A man or a woman who's learned that it's about God's glory and not their own. We can't imagine in much of the modern church that we could define success any other way. But if you teach a small Bible study, if you teach a Sunday school class, and you're being faithful to that, if you're leading your family well, if you're being faithful to teach your kids in the ways of Jesus Christ, if you're being faithful to what God's given you, that's success. In heaven's eyes, that's success. So that's What's going on here is the kingdom is being torn away from the son of Saul, Ishbosheth. Now, back in 2 Samuel 4, this is verse 2. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of raiding bands. The name of the one was 2 Samuel 4 2, Banana. I'm just kidding, it's not banana. Although, it's going to show in a little while that he's a bit 
bananas, but his name was Bana. The name of the other was Rechab. They were sons of Ramon the Barathite. This guy apparently had a drinking problem. You might want to just mark that. He's a, he's a beer-athite. Yeah, I know. And of the sons of Benjamin, for Beroth is also considered part of Benjamin. Now, some of you may be looking at your Bibles. You see verse 3, it says, The Barathites fled to Gittaim and have been aliens there until this day. And you might be thinking, well, in this story, why these kind of minor guys in the army, why are they brought up? Why, is, why are these two guys brought up? Because they are, end of verse 2, of the sons of what? Benjamin. And Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was the son of Kish. And so here's what's going on in the story. Abner's dead. Ishbosheth is in trouble. He's reeling. And the question's being asked, is there anybody who can come around this fledgling king? Is there anybody who can be his strength? Who's, who's going to be his cabinet now? Who's going who's to prop up this kingdom in the north now? And a story's told about these two guys. They're from the right tribe. They're, tri- they're from the tribe of Benjamin. Ramon and his sons, though they lived in Berath, did not belong to the earlier inhabitants of the town, but to the tribe of Benjamin. The connection is the future of frightened Ishbosheth. It depended on the likes of these two men. This writer says, before we get back to them, there is one other that we need to look at. There was one other that could potentially ascend to the throne. He's mentioned in verse 4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell, the boy fell, and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now we're going to hear more about this young man, but here's what happened. When Saul and Jonathan were on the battlefield and the Philistines were getting the best of them and they were on the verge of dying and then they died, word came to the house of Saul that father and son were dead, that Saul's sons had fell on the battlefield. And the nurse who was taking care of this five-year-old boy named Mephibosheth went running away because the address of Saul was known to other people. And they probably thought there's going to be a coup now or the Philistines are going to raid the headquarters of Saul. So the nurse took Mephibosheth, this little boy, and began running and they were trying to get out of town and either she dropped him or he fell and he became crippled in both of his legs. And this story, which will come up later in 2 Samuel, is a beautiful story. Because by all rights, David should have wanted to eliminate the, eliminated this boy because this boy, seven years later, this story is kind of told from the, a past experience. Seven years later, he's now 12. He's on the verge of what the Jews call a bar mitzvah. At 13, you become the son of the law. You become accountable for yourself in, in Jewish thinking. He's 12 now. He's mentioned here because he could be a threat to David's throne, but is he truly a threat? No. In fact, Ishbosheth shouldn't have been propped up in the north to begin with. The nation wouldn't have gone through a civil war had they just allied themselves under the true anointed king named David. How many problems could be avoided if marriages, families, Nations would just align themselves under the kingship of Jesus Christ. 
Amen? We could avoid a lot of problems personally and corporately if Jesus is truly Lord. But the nation was divided. And in their heart of hearts, I think even the rulers of the 11 tribes in the north knew that David should be the king. Why did they go with the flow? Because that's what we do sometimes. We go with the flow. We know that things should be a certain way, but we give in. We compromise. We say, ah, it's too much work to battle this one. And that's not what we should be doing. Now, we'll come back to this boy's story. It'll be told in chapter 9 and other places, but this is, uh, we're about to move into some mature content. Just a heads up if there's any young ones in here, parents. So the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, Rechab, and Banah, verse 5, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest, verse 5. Now these two characters that are introduced in verse 3, they have family ties to Saul's household, show up at the house where Ishbosheth is taking a midday rest. Now I mark that in my Bible because I want to be able to make an emphatic case that a midday rest is biblical. Can I get a witness? All right. So if anybody's ever bothering you because you're taking a nap during the day. Now, this does not count in church. There are no naps in church. All right. For years, I've been dreaming of a system where I could know your seat number and just give you a little zap from the pulpit if I see. <laughs> right. So we're working on that system right now. A midday rest. What a glorious thing. When you're a kid, you don't want to sleep. When you get older, you want to sleep, right? It's one of the great inventions of all time, a midday rest. Now, I hear some people say, 15-minute power nap. That's all you need. 15 minutes, bro. No, 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 no. Look, if you're going to take one, minimum is an hour. Don't you think? Anyway, however, I will tell you this. Where, where we are moving right now in this story, the recommendation to Ishbosheth should have been take the nap with one eye open because this is going to get ugly. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat. Now, showing up at the house and being connected in some way as family to Ishbosheth wouldn't have been a big deal to the servants and the guards. So obviously they let him in. They said, hey, we're. We came here to get some wheat thins. Uh, that's why we're, we're here at the... Oh, they didn't have those back in the day. But they wanted to get some wheat. And they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Banah, his brother, escaped. We're going to get more detail, but he's taking a midday nap. They go in under the pretense of, hey, we need some wheat. And they went into his bedroom. And they killed him. You're like, what? What's going on? Family members turning on family members for the sake of power and position? Ah, oh, unheard of. <laughs> yeah, right. And so they go in while this guy's sleeping and they murdered him in cold blood. This is the honesty of Scripture, right? We, we read some of these stories and we're like, man, what, what's going on? It just tells the story. This is what they did. They killed their own family member. How many of you have watched, maybe you're home sick from work and you go onto one of those channels that shows uh, investigations into the death of a spouse 
And almost every story is either the wife or the husband ended up killing them. And usually what was it about? It was either about another person that they were with or money. Well, this has been the story of mankind. We can watch it on primetime TV now. Saturday night, they play the special mystery at this place. What's happened? Someone else has killed their spouse. And for what? For another relationship that's probably going to end up at the same place that that one was at? Because, by the way, you're part of the problem if your relationship's not going well. I know it's hard to take. But it takes two to tango. Jesus said, you'll know people by their fruits. These two men, their plan was, and this is going to get brutal, but they're going to take this guy's head to David. And they're going to say, David, look, look what we've brought you. This shows our allegiance. We're going to take care of the guy that's been vying for power. It says, now, when they came into the house, verse 7, as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head. This is a gruesome detail, but this is what happened. And it, by the way, the same thing happened to Saul after he died on the battlefield. The Philistines did this to him. And they traveled by way of the Arabah all night. They struck him, beheaded him, took their grisly trophy and headed for Hebron, about 60 miles, with the head in hand. And they had a plan. You see, these two brothers could see the writing on the wall. They knew that David was gaining power in the south. They knew that Ishbosheth was in deep trouble. And when Abner died, they said, uh-oh, this is it. This is curtains for the household of Saul. Saul's household was already growing weaker. David's was growing stronger. The power behind Ishbosheth was now dead. David was being blessed by God. He was growing stronger. He was God's man. And these two men said, Ah, here's an opportunity. Yeah, he's our family member and all, but if we take him out, this will please the king down in the south. And guess what? We'll probably get some nice positions in David's kingdom where girls will fan us with those fans and feed us grapes all day. And David will say, these are my two favorite guys. But they made a slight miscalculation. Almost like, and some of you are thinking of it, thinking of it right now, the Amalekite who came to David in chapter one of this book and said, hey, uh, Saul was dying on the battlefield and I finished him off. It was his request and uh, it was a bad career move. Do you remember? He ended up paying with his life. He didn't understand David's heart. Well, this assassination that happens to Ishbosheth is going to change everything. And some of you may, saying, may be saying, yeah, this, this does eliminate all threats to the throne. In essence, where is God in all of this? Well, God lets people exercise free will. He's going to use this for the elevation of David and the unity of the nation. But he didn't need these two guys' help. He didn't need them to speed it along. How many times did, Saul, uh, did David have a chance to kill Saul and David wouldn't touch him? If they knew anything about David, they would have known that to show up in this way and say they finished this guy off 
was not going to go well before this king. He was a different kind of king. He trusted God. He did not believe in manipulating things for his own gain. He knew if God made him a promise, God was going to keep it in his way and in his time. Do you? Do I? I'm a mover and shaker by nature. I, I like to make things happen. And God's constantly trying to get a hold of my coattail and say, slow down, Michael. I got this. I'm like, but Lord, if I, if I just did this over here, wouldn't this help you out? No, I'm okay without you, Michael. <laughs> How about you just get on board with my plan? And so they brought the head of Ishbosheth, verse 8, to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Behold, look! <laughs> I don't know how they got in and all that, but the head of Ishbosheth, the, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. Look what we did for you, king. Sorry, but this is it. <laughs> you see? We're faithful men. This was your enemy. He is no mas. He's no more. Aren't we good? Aren't we grand? Well, as I mentioned, they are going to make a serious miscalculation. 2 Samuel 9.1 says, David asked the question, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Do you know David, even after all of this, was going out of his way to show in Hebrew, has said to the family of Saul, the family that really, because Saul did this, was his arch enemy, he wanted to show them kindness. A soft answer turns away wrath. Sometimes we, you know, people expect us to fight and we show them kindness instead. And oftentimes it blows people's minds. They don't know what to make of it. You've heard of the old phrase, killing people with kindness. There's something to it. It's the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. Sometimes we feel like God's going to throw the hammer down on us and he's gracious with us and he's patient and we're blown away by his loyal love. This Hebrew word all over the Bible used over 200 times is hesed. It speaks of God's covenant love, his loving kindness, his steadfast love. In the Hebrew picture language, it means the door of mercy and protection and refuge and foundation. Sometimes we're, we're full of fear and trepidation, and we don't know if we can even come to God. And he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I'll give you rest. I know who you are. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know what you've muttered. I know what you've thought. I know the things that you would never admit publicly, but you know what? I love you anyway. Come through the door of mercy. That, this is why David is such a grand picture of the greater David, Jesus, because he surprises us with how he deals with people. He deals with people who are broken like lepers and people who are caught in the act of adultery and people who were outcasts of society like little Zacchaeus in Luke 19. And the people mutter and say, why is he going into his house? He's been ripping off everybody in the neighborhood. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, for he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. David was surprising. 
in the way he would deal with Saul, and yet very just and righteous when people did wicked, as we're about to see. David answered Rechab and Banah, his brethren, sons of Ramon, the Barathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, this is oath language, who has redeemed my life from all distress. You might want to mark that. It's a great statement by David, and I believe you can own it. I've owned that one for my own life. The Lord has redeemed my life from all distress, all straits, all trouble, my biggest trouble, sin and death. He's delivered me. He's my redeemer. David says, the Lord has redeemed my life from every distress. Why this? Why now? I think to say to these brothers, I didn't need you to do this. The Lord's been on my side this whole time. The Lord's been the one that's been weaving this tapestry together. I didn't need you to come with the head of this king in the north. God was going to take care of things. In fact, he's already been taking care of things. He's redeemed my life from every distress. Praise God. Mark it for yourself. He is my redeemer. He's purchased me. He's bought me. He's redeemed my life from all distress. When one told me, David reflecting back on the Amalekite in chapter 1, saying, Behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Now, the two brothers have to be a little bit unnerved at this point. They had to be feeling pretty good walking in. Hey, we got the head. We're good. This is going to be, we're going to get ahead in life. Yeah. Anyway, and, and now I'm sure they're looking at each other and going, you know, uh, this is not what I expected to hear. He's talking about, as the Lord lives, redeem my life from all distress. And talking about some Amalekites seven years ago. And it, it didn't go well for him. And, hmm, this could be bad. Well, it's going to be bad. Verse 11, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? And then David commanded the young men, and they killed them and cut, cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Wow. David gave the order. They cut off the hands and the feet of these men. I know some of you may not want breakfast now, but it's okay. It may help your dieting. The Bible can do that for you if you read these Old Testament accounts. Anyway, some of you will get over it quickly and you'll be at the donut table, I know. But. And as a public display of humiliation and judgment, they hung these guys up, which was kind of the, wor the worst Humiliation you could have. In fact, Deuteronomy says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And when they publicly displayed Jesus on the cross in Jerusalem, this scripture was at the backdrop of that. You see, the Son of Man became a curse for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He took the, the punishment. He was treated as though he were a capital criminal, though he was completely innocent. Why? For me and you. This is what God did. This is how God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so these men are hung up, and they're put there for all to see. Ishbosheth is buried with Abner, which is quite appropriate. 
That's the end of this chapter. Have a nice Sunday. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to end on that note. I'm going to show you a little bit in chapter 5 as we prepare our hearts for communion. And I think this is a very appropriate way to end our morning together. I want to show you what happens to the nation. This is a little sneak peek. We'll read the first five verses of chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David. So this has all happened. This king in the north is dead. These these, uh, family members are dead. And all the tribes, and you're going to see this is representatively. They're not... It's not a million people there, but, or however many are there at the time, but it's represented, represented by the, the elders. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. You could translate this, we are your body. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. Speaks of leadership in battle. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people, Israel. You will be a ruler over all Israel. By the way, there's a prophecy in Micah 5.2 that reads very much like this about Jesus. You will shepherd my people, Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, down in the south, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they, that is all the tribes, not just Judah, anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. When Jesus began his public ministry, the book of Luke in chapter 3, verse 23, says Jesus, as he began his ministry, was about 30 years old. Uh, Scholars count three Passovers from the time Jesus began his public ministry till his death and believe that Jesus died at 33. Uh, It is interesting to look at these numbers. David began to reign at 30 and reigned uh, for this period of time. Jesus began his public ministry at 30. One of the initial onsets or Uh, affirmations of that public ministry is Jesus came to the Jordan River in Israel, came up to a man named John the Baptizer and said, baptize me. And John said, whoa, wait a minute. You need to baptize me. I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of your sandal strap. Why do you ask me this? And Jesus said, let it be done that we might fulfill all Righteousness. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River was not because he needed to get baptized for repentance. He didn't need to repent of anything. He was following in the fallen footsteps of his fractured people. He got baptized in the Jordan River because as the children of Israel were baptized in the Red Sea and came to the other side of the sea, they didn't believe God. They spent 40 years in the desert in doubt and fear and caravans, planning to go back to Egypt. And God said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And Jesus, from his baptism, went into the desert, compelled by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. 
And there, where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus retracing the fallen footsteps of Israel, Jesus succeeded. And three times when the devil came to him, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he did not fall to the temptation of Satan, and Satan fled from him. Where Israel fell, Jesus succeeded. The whole story of the gospel is the God-man at 30 publicly being anointed, if you will, at his baptism by the Holy Spirit, being baptized for the ministry of three short years, maybe three and a half, that he might fulfill all righteousness, go to the cross and die for the sins of the world and rise for our justification. And the Bible says this, the greater David, the son of David, has come, and if you will believe on him, if you will make him your king, you will live. If you will receive him as your Lord, which is another way of saying king, your savior, if you will come to him and say, you know what, we made mistakes. We shouldn't have given this guy in the north our allegiance. We knew all along you were the king. We knew all along you were the anointed one. And if you will say to him, this is what the Bible says, if you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you will believe in his death on the cross and his resurrection, if you will turn from doing it in your own strength, trying to build your own kingdom and do it God's way, if you will come and say to his king, you are my Lord, you are my savior, you are my life, you are the answer, you are my strength, he will save you. But you must decide to be loyal to his kingdom. You must have a moment when you turn away from all the other things. And this beautiful picture of this nation coming to David is a picture of salvation where they say to him, you know what, we realize you are king. We will anoint you as our leader. And we, as people of God, need to say that every day of our lives. You are king. I set you apart as Lord of my life. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's why I'm in church every Sunday, by the way. Partly because I have to preach. But mostly because I made a declaration when I got saved. As for me, in my house, we are going to serve the Lord. I don't care what anybody else is doing. I care, but you know what I'm saying. I'm going to serve the Lord. Have you decided to make him your king? You know, before we come to his table, which anticipates a time in his kingdom where we will sit down and eat and drink with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God, and we're going to be celebrating forever the gospel. Before you come to this table, let me just ask you, do you know him? Have you made him your king? He invites you to come. He says, look, you, you, you all know you're saved by grace. This is not by works. But you have to have a moment when you decide you're going to give him your loyalty. You're going to follow him. And then you come to his table to anticipate his second coming, and to remember his death for you and his resurrection. So let's take a few moments. If you have not met Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior, let's make sure you know him. And if you're a Christian already, maybe just a little business and saying, Lord, I just want to get closer this morning. I want to receive more of your strength, more of your direction, know you better. Let's just take a few moments right now. Father, we just thank you for all the precious people that have come out on this Sunday morning to worship you in spirit and in truth, to hear your word, to sing your praises, to come to your table, to fellowship with other believers. We are so grateful, Lord. We don't want to even take one Sunday for granted. 
But thank you so much that you gave us this gift. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus, it's something like this. Lord Jesus, save me. I believe that you came into this world to save me. I believe you died on that cross for my sin. Pray it if it's you right now. Settle it. I believe you rose from the dead for my justification to save me, to make me right in your eyes, to pay my ransom price. Please forgive me, Lord, for trying to build my own kingdom, for trying to do things in my own strength. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my strength, be my King. Change me from the inside out, Lord. I want to be born again, pray it if it's you, to a living hope in Christ. I want to know that my sin is forgiven, that there's hope beyond the grave. Thank you for providing all of that. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts, for Christians who are wanting to just get a little bit closer to you today, um, for your honor, we want to come to this table to remember you. So bless each person as they come, and I pray you strengthen them through this time in Jesus' holy name.